Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 53, The End of Empires. First of all, big thanks to my friend Todor Bozhinov for becoming a Patreon supporter. If you're curious about traveling in Bulgaria, exploring its cuisine, its culture, check out his excellent blog, Kashkaval Tourist. It's been a favorite of mine since he founded it and comes highly recommended. Also, a big thanks to Monica Zapriyanova, who I had the pleasure of meeting in London recently and also just became a Patreon supporter. So, big thanks, Monica. Last time. Sultan Bayezid expanded into Anatolia, asserting more complete control over Serbia. Velikotrnovo fell to an Ottoman siege, and Tsar Ivan Shishman was killed, leaving Ivan Stratsimir Tsar more or less by default. But more importantly, with the Hungarian king Sigismund finally viewing the Ottoman threat as serious, a grand crusade was organized to combat Bayezid. So he left off in 1396, just as this crusader army was heading down the Danube by ship on its way to challenge the Ottomans. Within days, they reached the Iron Gates. Until the 19th century, this was an impassable stretch of the Danube, and so the army had to cross via pontoon boats. Now, this event is actually how we have a better estimate of the army's size, because sources say it took them eight days to cross showing that Ottoman sources claiming the Crusader army had over 100,000 soldiers are impossibly exaggerated, as that many soldiers could never have crossed in just eight days. But anyways, their first stop after the Iron Gates was Vidin, which, you'll recall, was an Ottoman vassal state still ruled by Ivan Stratzimir, who could be considered Tsar after his brother's recent death at the hands of the Ottomans. Upon the arrival of the crusader force, Ivan Stratzimir opened the gates to the mighty fortress and allowed them in. The small Ottoman garrison was killed, and Vidin was, you could say, liberated. Next, the crusaders came down to another Danubian fortress city, Oryakovo. Now, you'll recall from previous crusades that every time Western European knights got out on crusade, they were a bit like kids going off to war, eager for action and chances to prove their bravery. Now, Vidin surrendered quickly, and so their lust for glory had yet to be satiated, and they were eager to get the glory that they craved at Oryakovo. As a result, the French knights rushed ahead of the army and put the town under siege. When the inhabitants surrendered on the condition that their lives and property be spared, the French ignored this and pillaged anyways. Ottomans and Bulgarians alike were taken prisoner. Sigismund was furious at the French, as he had promised to avoid this violence. And the French themselves were angry at not having enough chances for glory. Thus, right from the get-go, a small rift in the Crusader army was established. The army then moved up to Nicopolis. Now remember, this fortress city on the southern banks of the Danube was where Ivan Shishman had holed himself up 
as the Ottomans ravaged Bulgaria. Now it was in Ottoman hands and well prepared for a prolonged siege. Problem was, the Crusaders had brought no siege equipment. Granted, they had a navy on the Danube, and their army could therefore completely surround and isolate Nicopolis on the sea and land sides. But when it came to actually storming the walls, they would have to rely on simple tools like ladders. Armed with this knowledge, they settled into a siege anyways. Now, they started to relax, have some merrymaking, get drunk a bit, relax, confident that the Ottomans were nowhere in the vicinity. This confidence was likely why they didn't use scouts or sentries to get an idea of what the hell was happening in the lands around them. Fortunately for the Crusaders, though, soldiers out foraging for food soon learned that the Ottoman army was on its way. Bayezid had been laying siege to Constantinople, but was forced to lift that siege when he got word that the Crusader army was approaching. Now, he was on his way to meet them, with his Serbian vassal Stefan Lazarevic on his way to link up with Bayezid. Sigismund's scouts did eventually confirm that the Ottomans were on their way, but the French nobles refused to believe the news, having convinced themselves that the Ottomans were cowards and would never face them, the great knights of France, in open battle. Such was their superiority. Still, not all of the French contingent believed their commander. One group scouted ahead and managed to ambush a contingent of Ottomans, doing great damage. Now this had two contradictory effects. First, it made the Crusader commanders realize that yes, the Ottomans were in fact on their way, without a doubt. But it also increased the confidence of the French to even greater heights. By now, their primary concern was not beating the Ottomans. That was a foregone conclusion. It was making sure they got the most glory in the process. The oncoming Ottoman threat now confirmed, King Sigismund gathered the various commanders to decide on a battle plan. The initial plan was a sound one. Wallachian troops, experienced in combating the Ottomans by now, would engage the Ottoman foot soldiers, the sort of sentries that would go ahead of the army. Only once those poorly trained foot soldiers had been dealt with would the powerful French knights charge. The French outraged. How dare the Wallachian and Hungarian kings suggest that the noble French knights go into battle behind Wallachian peasant troops? Again, victory being certain, honor was more important than considered military strategy. So the battle would begin with a glorious charge by the French knights. Everyone else was just going to have to work around that. As the Ottomans got closer, the order was given to execute prisoners taken in the crusade so far, with the excuse that there weren't enough soldiers to guard them. European and Ottoman historians alike have to this day condemned this act as barbaric and unnecessary. The next morning, as the armies were setting up, an Ottoman contingent of light cavalry could be seen straight ahead. The French presumed that this was their main force, and most of their commanders pushed for an immediate attack. Sigismund wanted to wait until his scouts could come back with more information, 
But the eager French knights claimed that those who wished to wait were simply cowards and pushed ahead with their plan. If it wasn't clear already, the crusade had no overall commander, so Sigismund couldn't really stop them. The Ottomans positioned themselves on the high ground. In this case, a hill, facing the crusader army. In front of their force was a contingent of light cavalry. Behind them, up on the hill, was a line of pikes, sharpened wooden stakes pressed into the ground to prevent a cavalry charge, and behind them, archers. Woods on the hill hid the remaining Sipahi cavalry on the left and right flanks, as well as Bayezid and the Janissaries in the rear. Lastly, off on the left flank, well hidden, was Stefan Lazarevich and his Serbian knights. Thus, all the crusaders could really see was the light cavalry and archers behind an anti-cavalry barrier. The rest of the Ottoman force, the majority of the Ottoman force, was hidden in woods and upon the hill. Facing them, the crusader forces had the French knights up front with what remained in the rear. Historian Barbara Tuchman described what happened as follows. Quote, The French charge crushed the untrained conscripts in the Turkish front line and advanced onto the lines of trained infantry. Though the knights came under heavy fire from archers and were hampered by rows of sharpened stakes designed to skewer the stomachs of their horses, chroniclers write of horses impaled on stakes, riders dismounting, stakes being pulled up to allow horses through, and the eventual rout of the Turkish infantry who fled behind the relative safety of the Sipahis. Cousy and Vienne recommended that the French pause to reform their ranks, give themselves some rest, and allow the Hungarians time to advance to a position where they could support the French. They were overruled by the younger knights, who, having no idea of the size of the Turkish force, believed that they had just defeated Bayezid's entire army and insisted on pursuit. End quote. By the time the French knights reached the top of the hill, they were certain that they had defeated the Ottoman force. But of course, they were gravely mistaken. The exhausted French knights in their armor encountered fresh Turkish Sipahi cavalry who counterattacked. No surprise at such an attack on exhausted French knights just at the moment when they realized their terrible mistake had a devastating effect. As the Sipahis surged forward, Ottoman war music and calls of Allah Akbar must have been terrifying. By all accounts, the French fought fiercely. But having rode so far ahead of the other crusaders, against the advice of Sigismund and Mirkea Velakia, they were completely exposed and on their own. The result was a massacre. Though some knights were taken prisoner for later ransom. Now, what happened at this point isn't entirely clear. It seems that the sight of the utter defeat of the French knights caused morale to plummet amongst the crusaders. One by one, each group decided that the battle was lost and turned to the Danube to escape on the Venetian ships. Other accounts claim that the crusaders managed to reach the encircled French knights, but were themselves encircled, leading Wallachian and Transylvanian soldiers to fight hard to break out of the encirclement and flee to the Danube. These sources claim that the crusaders almost managed to turn things around at this moment. But then the Sultan ordered his Serbian vassals to attack from the left. This final devastating charge by fresh Serbian cavalry 
broke the Crusaders and led to a complete rout towards the Venetian ships on the Danube. Now, whichever version of events you believe, the battle was undoubtedly a complete and utter defeat for the Crusaders, thanks largely to the hubris of the French knights. Sigismund himself would later write that, quote, We lost the day by the pride and vanity of these French. If they believed my advice, we had enough men to fight our enemies, end quote. When Bayezid discovered that the Crusaders had massacred prisoners before the battle began, he made the decision to meet their barbarity with his own. A few French nobles were chosen to be ransomed, and the youngest Frenchmen pressed into slavery, while the rest were tied together in groups and decapitated in front of the Sultan. The retreating Crusaders found little food as they moved through Wallachia back to Hungary and their various homes, and as a result, those who did make it back returned starving and in rags. When news of the defeat reached Paris, the city was paralyzed by grief, with funerals and mourning stretching on for days and days. But beyond this grief, the ramifications were far greater. Western and Central Europe had gathered together to challenge the growing Ottoman threat. Now, that those efforts had ended in utter failure, the rest of Europe lost its appetite for crusading against the Ottomans. England and France returned to their Hundred Years' War, and Sigismund attempted to secure his position outside of Hungary, leading to his ultimate imprisonment and facing multiple uprisings. The authority he had attempted to build through the crusade was now nowhere to be found, and thus all of Central Europe became less stable in the wake of his decreased autonomy and authority. Only the Wallachians, who had fled to preserve their forces to fight another day, continued to focus their efforts on resisting the Ottomans. Unsurprisingly, as soon as the Battle of Nicopolis was over, Sultan Bayezid marched directly to Vidin and recaptured it. For daring to support the Crusaders against the Sultan, who, remember, was his vassal lord, Ivan Stratzimir, essentially the last Tsar of the Second Bulgarian Empire, was captured and taken to the Ottoman capital of Bursa. There, he was most likely strangled. His death saw the end of a line of Tsars and Khans, which stretched back more than seven centuries, indeed into the mists of history beyond, which we know little about. It was the end of a line of 51 Bulgarian monarchs. I'm going to read their names just to reinforce this idea of the history that was ending at this moment. They were Asperuch, Tervel, Kormesi, Sevar, Kormisos, Vinech, Teletz, Sabine, Umor, Toktu, Pagan, Telerig, Kardam, Krum, Umurtag, Malamir, Presian I, Boris I, Vladimir, Simeon I, Peter I, Boris II, Roman, Samuel, Gavriel Radomir, Ivan Vladislav, Presian II, Peter Delian, Constantine Bowden, Ivanison I, Peter II, Kalyan, Boril, Ivanison II, Kaliman I Asen, Michael II Asen, Kaliman II Asen, Mitso Asen, 
Konstantin Tich, Ivailo, Ivanasen III, George Terter I, Smilets, Chaka, Diodor Sviatoslav, George Terter II, Mikhail Shishman, Ivan Stefan, Ivan Alexander, Ivan Shishman, and Ivan Stratsimir. Paisi Hilandarsky put it this way in his Slavo-Bulgarian history, written in 1762. Quote, Such is the end of the Bulgarian kings and their glorious name that they had at the beginning, as was written in this little history. From the time when the Bulgarians crossed the Danube and settled in Thrace, Macedonia, and in part of Illyricum, they had their own tsardom and an independent state for 980 years. After Agarin and Ismail's offspring were victorious and God led them to defeat many tsardoms and kingdoms, there came an end to the Bulgarian tsardom as well, and it fell under the domination of the infidels. End quote. And so Vidin was no longer an Ottoman vassal state, but was fully incorporated into the empire, just as the rest of Bulgaria had been. It may not have been a very definite moment, but this moment is largely viewed as the firm and definitive end of the Second Bulgarian Empire. Of the two remaining sons of the royal dynasty, one had converted to Islam and was serving the Ottomans in Anatolia, while the other was in exile in Hungary. But as I just made clear, there was no longer any European power willing or able to seriously challenge the Ottomans and create space for the reestablishment of a Bulgarian state. It had been 211 years since the brothers Theodor and Asen had led an uprising against the Byzantines in Tornovo. But the Second Bulgarian Empire was now over. The Ottomans stood virtually unopposed in the Balkans and poised to strike out into Central Europe. Only the Byzantines remained in a few scattered outposts in their great fortress of a capital, Constantinople. For the remainder of this episode, I'm going to talk a bit about the broader cultural and economic trends of the Second Bulgarian Empire, and sort of generally look at it as a whole. Then, the next few episodes will recap all the history since the fall of the First Bulgarian Empire. So, the first major question to answer, in my mind, is just what made the Second Bulgarian Empire different than the First? Well, to start, let's remember that the overriding goal of the First Empire for most of its history was simply to establish itself. That meant transforming from a small, elite tribe of steppe warriors ruling over a large population to something more resembling a nation in today's understanding. Ultimately, that meant allowing the merging of the Proto-Bulgarians and Slavs as well as a conversion to Christianity. But another part of that goal was either defeating the Byzantines or replacing them, or at least acquiring titles from the empire. Those titles, like Tsar, gave the First Bulgarian Empire legitimacy on the European stage. But by the time the Second Empire was founded, those goals were accomplished. This is likely why the new empire chose to call itself Bulgarian, and not, say, name itself after the Asen dynasty which founded it. By the time Theodor and Asen founded a new state in Turnival, Bulgaria, as a name, meant something. So what was the overriding goal of the Second Bulgarian Empire? Well, I would say it didn't have one. I mean, sure, there was the goal of survival, as much as that's the goal of any state. The empire wished to expand its borders to become wealthier and more powerful. Indeed, 
the Second Bulgarian Empire was much more of a traditional state of its time. It was governed much more in Byzantine lines, adopting the titles and bureaucratic structures of that empire. And though this goal was far less successful over time, the ability of Turnovo to exert central control, as well as the ability of the state to muster a large army, undoubtedly diminished over the life of the empire. Early on, the Second Bulgarian Empire could muster 40,000 soldiers on command. Late in its life, that number was more like 10,000. A component of this seems to have been declining morale. I've spoken many times about how over the course of the Ottoman conquests, Bulgarian as well as Byzantine morale seemed incredibly low. The reasons for this are varied, but I see consistent failure on the part of central authorities to stand up to invading forces and effectively protect their populations. In addition, each, each sort of the empire seems to consistently drag the Ottomans or other outside powers into civil wars, though obviously that applied much more to the Byzantines than the Bulgarians. But think about this kind of from the average person's perspective. I mean, imagine you're being asked to defend a central government that doesn't seem to do anything to help you in return. But what about the economy? Well, the basics aren't surprising. Bulgaria produced agricultural products like grain and barley, raised grapes for wine, produced honey and wax products, and raised many, many animals. Now, while Bulgaria had a fair amount of arable land, it also had plenty of mountains as well. And these forested mountains, while not terribly useful for growing crops, were excellent for raising livestock. There's also some mining in those mountains. Added to this, is what would become an increasingly important component of the Bulgarian economy, or the economy of Bulgarian lands once the Ottomans take over. And that's crafts. This includes making wool clothing, leather shoes, carved wood products of all kinds, earthenware, fur, forged metal products, furniture, any number of things. Of course, nearly all this economic activity declined over the course of the Second Bulgarian Empire, as raids and brigandage made economic activity more and more difficult and dangerous. But still, over time, Bulgaria's craft production will become a defining force in its economy. Coins worked or didn't work much on the same grounds. When central authority was strong, Bulgarian monetary policy created stable currency, which was the bedrock of economic activity. However, during more chaotic times, coin minting declined significantly, and counterfeits would swarm the market. In terms of religious policy, during the First Empire, the debate was whether to retain the old pagan ways, embrace Catholicism, or embrace Orthodoxy. Now, after many years going back and forth between the latter two Christian options, Orthodoxy was chosen. However, religious policies of the Second Empire show that the Tsars were still ready to recognize the authority of the Pope in Rome for the right price. Tsar Kaoyan did indeed recognize the Pope for about three decades, but this had no real lasting effect. Also for a brief time, when the Latin Crusaders took Constantinople, Veliko Tornovol actually became the main center of Orthodox Christianity in the world. And this was an exciting opportunity for the Tsars at the time, but it never really amounted to very much before Constantinople was reconquered and returned to its place as the capital of Orthodoxy. Bogomilism and other heresies also continued to flourish in Bulgaria as they had during the First Empire. But the Second Empire focused more resources on eliminating them. 
As such, by the later years of the Second Empire, Bokemilism was mostly gone from Bulgarian lands. Now this was a run-through of some of these broad trends. But for the next few episodes, there's going to be a recap of all the events from the fall of the First Bulgarian Empire to the fall of the Second, as I said. So those episodes will take us about through the rest of 2017. And then, when the new year comes, we'll pick back up and begin the next section of our story, which is Bulgaria under the Ottoman Empire. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And, as always, Uzbek, or in English, good luck. <laughs>